O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. A reading from the second letter of Peter. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory saying, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Six days after Peter had acknowledged Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. From the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. So how about a multimedia sermon? Yeah? Just for a change. Just for a change. Today is a special day in the church calendar. This is one of those rare moments where we actually celebrate a gospel story twice in the year. The story, as we call it, of the Transfiguration is also commemorated on its own feast day on August 6th, but we hear the story at the end of every season after the Epiphany, right before Lent, because it forms a bookend for us for this season of Epiphany, or that other fancy word, Theophany, which is God revealed, God manifest to us. And it begins and it ends with the same words coming from God. This is my son, the beloved. And then because Peter has been shooting off at the mouth again, as he often does, God says, listen to him today. Listen to Jesus. You see this modern-day icon of the scene on the mountaintop. You see Jesus Moses, the bringer of the law, some say the initiator of the prophetic tradition, and Elijah, the epitome of the prophetic tradition, the great warrior prophet of the Hebrew scriptures, and James, John, and here's Peter over here going, oh my God, I messed up again. (laughs) Right? Right? Peter is an interesting figure in this story because Peter has, just six days before, he has been the one disciple who has realized that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One. Except Peter's understanding of Christ, the Anointed One, is not at all what Peter witnesses on the mountaintop. Peter 
probably thought initially by being the anointed one, Jesus would be the successor to the ancient King David, would throw the Roman bums out and restore Israel in all of its Davidic glory. A good earthly political ruler. And of course, Peter, when he gets to the mountaintop and he sees Jesus in his glory and he sees Moses and Elijah, he must immediately know what that Christian community, probably living in Antioch towards the end of the first century, understood when Matthew was writing this story for them, that what is being revealed here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, exemplified by Moses, and of the prophetic tradition, exemplified by Elijah. That was enough for Peter. Enough so much that he could say, all right, let's set up three dwellings, and we'll have everybody stay up here on the mountaintop, and maybe we'll charge admission. Right? Would have been a nice life. Getting away from the matting crowds, not having to deal with the smells anymore, not having to deal with the difficult people. And, you know, the rest of the disciples are okay, but the three of us are just fine with Jesus. Thank you very much. We'll just, we'll just hang out up here. Peter misses the boat completely, of course. And the end of today's gospel is also very clear that we won't fully understand what this means until we have gone through Lent and experienced Easter Put another way, we won't understand Christ glorified until we have walked with him, carrying our own cross and bearing under the sufferings of this life and seeing God's grace unfold in those moments. That's also known as the mountaintop experience. It's a kind of archetypal or primordial image in the tradition course, we recognize this one. Incidentally, this is artwork by a modern artist, Edward Rowan. This is Moses on the mountaintop. The Israelites saw God as their Savior who brought them out of slavery in Egypt with the promise of taking them to the promised land. But what they didn't count on and what none of us count on when we encounter the living God is not only will we be liberated, we will be transformed. And so what's happening in today's story in Exodus is Moses goes up on the mountaintop and no one knows quite what's going to happen. But when Moses comes down again with the law, he is going to be delivering to the people a brand new identity. A brand new way of being. They will be changed forever. They will no longer just be liberated slaves. They will be a brand new people. A nation, the prophets will later tell them, offered for the whole world. That's what transfiguration is about ultimately for us, I think. It's not just about Jesus changed on the mountaintop, but as our prayer that opened the service today said, it is about us being drawn in to that transformation from glory to glory, as that beautiful prayer says. It is something that challenges us, that transforms us, and that offers us a new perspective on everything.
it's always good to get sermon advice from parishioners. I got some this week. A parishioner emailed me and said, hey, you know, look at this. Look at the fact that less than six decades ago, we got to see our world with our own eyes as a whole for the first time. And he called this the overview effect. The sense in which we could at last see our earth fragile in its wholeness. Now, astronauts are not known to be poets, or theologians for that matter. In fact, they're trained to be the exact opposite. They're trained to follow procedures. They're trained to be engineers and scientists. And they're trained that way for a good reason, because if they don't follow the procedures, and if they don't take one step after another to solve problems, they're dead. It's that simple. And yet the astronauts who saw this image with their own eyes back in the 1960s for the very first time started to spout poetry and theology. So moved were they by this image of what we had come to assume and had assumed for generations was solid, inexhaustible in its resources, impossible for us to move or to shake, suddenly now hung out there in the blackness of space, fragile, and as we say in one of our prayers, like an island, and yet it is our home. Now, I don't know about you, I grew up watching Carl Sagan on Cosmos on PBS. Any of you do that? Yeah. My dad and I would get together. We, we were big into science, and I loved astronomy, so I would watch Carl Sagan and, and grew up with his words, you know, billions and billions, sort of echoing in my ears. Back in the 1980s, Carl Sagan, who was very influential in the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 probes into the outer solar system, actually convinced the management team of Voyager 1 to turn the camera around. And just a couple of weeks ago, NASA released a, an enhanced image that Voyager 1 took. This is called the pale blue dot. Can anybody see the Earth? It's right here. It's right here, caught in this beam of light in the camera lens. This is from six billion miles away, which in the universe is next door, really. Not even next door, it's like your backyard, yeah? Carl Sagan, who probably wouldn't be caught dead even in an Episcopal service, said this. He said, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father 
hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known, a transformed understanding, transfiguration. Carl Sagan might go as far as another contemporary scientist would say that we live and we bring meaning to a universe that is generally impartial, impartial, unconcerned. But this view of the world has a special significance in our tradition as well, and for that we can turn to the mystics who understood this centuries before we were sending anything into orbit, let alone far enough out to see our world as a whole. This is an icon of Julian of Norwich, the medieval mystic. This icon, in its full size, by the way, hangs at the Church Divinity School of the Pacific over in Berkeley. And when I was a seminarian, I could be caught there occasionally in prayer. Robert Lentz, a Franciscan who painted this icon, is capturing a couple of things. He's capturing a mystical experience that Julian had, even in the medieval period, that talked about God's loving concern. This is the difference, you might say, in our tradition and what Jesus is revealing today to us on the mountaintop and what God is saying to us. That while we might live in an impartial universe and we may be small, we are profoundly loved. Robert Lentz captured this when he paints the image of the earth, surrounded by the loving hands of Christ. And it was Julian who penned these words in the medieval period, long before rocket ships were even a dream. In this, she wrote, God showed me a little thing, the quantity of a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand as it seemed, and it was as round as any ball. I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what may this be? And it was answered generally thus, it is all that is made. I marveled how it might last, for I thought it might suddenly have fallen to nothingness for littleness. And I was answered in my understanding it lasts and ever shall, for God loves it. And so have all things their beginning by the love of God. In this little thing I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second, that God loves it. And the third, that God keeps it. My sisters and brothers, this day, 
as we lift up our last alleluias before the Lenten season, remember that God made you, that God loves you, and that God keeps you, and all the world, and in fact the whole universe, in the loving hands of Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace. We hope to greet you in person very soon.